You are now listening to the July 21st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topic is The History of the Biblio, the Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. Hello everyone, this is Jisoo, your host for the program The History of the Biblium. Last time, we focused on the time period when the Bible was first written. The entirety of the Bible was recorded over 1,000 years by about 40 different writers. We also learned that the Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew, with a bit of Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. How were the first Bibles written and produced? Since the first printing press was not invented until the 15th century, the first Bibles would not have been mass-produced. Before the printing press was invented, all books were transcribed by hand, and Bibles were no exception. Before paper was invented, how were things recorded? In ancient times, clay was used for documentation. A stylus was used to write on the clay, which was then baked and dried. Then in 2000 BC, in Egypt, papyrus was invented. Papyrus was a large reed that grew by the Nile River. This reed was worked in a special way to create a light, thin product similar to paper. Other than papyrus, parchment scrolls were also used. Parchment scrolls are created by scraping and scratching animal skins multiple times to make them a thin material. These parchment scrolls were mentioned in the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 13 says, quote, When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments." End quote. This was a message from Paul to Timothy, asking him to bring few of his belongings while being imprisoned in Rome. The books mentioned in this verse are synonymous with the word scrolls. Scrolls are papyrus or parchment rolled onto a stick which forms the scroll. Before the first century, books were papyrus or parchment scrolls and this was the case for the scriptures as well. In Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 2, God commands Jeremiah to, quote, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the day of Josiah, even to this day. End quote. Continuing in verse 4, quote, then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. End quote. As God commanded, Jeremiah had Baruch transcribe God's words onto a scroll. Also, chapter 2 of Ezekiel tells the story of Ezekiel being called as a prophet. Ezekiel was commanded to eat the scroll with words of lamentation and mourning written on them. All of the books in the Old Testament were scrolls. Then in the first century, books were transitioned into codex. 
Codex is an ancient manuscript text in book form similar to what we have today. Even after the Codex was devised, a lot of writers still preferred the form of a scroll. Codex was first implemented by Christians. In contrast to scrolls which were limited to writing on one side, Codex allowed for writing on both sides, which were more fitting for books of substantial size. An interesting fact is that the Bible was first printed in the 15th century when Gutenberg's printing press was invented. With the development of this printing press, the Gutenberg Bible was the first book printed and began to spread quickly. It was through God's providence that man created the printing press and therefore preserved the Bible to this day. Examples of God's providence can be found in the Exodus and Jeremiah. In Exodus, the story of Moses receiving God's commandments during 40 days on Mount Sinai is written. God gives Moses two tablets with the commandments recorded on them to instruct and guide the Israelites. Not long after descending from the mountain with the tablets of stone engraved by God, Moses explodes in anger at the people worshipping a golden calf and throws the tablets at the foot of the mountain. The tablets were shattered, but God did not let his commandments become extinct. In Exodus chapter 34 verse 1 and 28, it says, quote, Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, end quote. Although Moses destroyed it, God graciously inscribed it once again. Jeremiah tells a similar story. Jeremiah had Baruch transcribe God's words onto a scroll. But these scrolls were shredded and thrown into the fire by Jehoiakim, king of Judah because he did not like God's words about the punishment and the judgment day. But God revived the scripture that nearly vanished. The following is from Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 27 to 28. Quote, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scrolls and the words which Baruch had written at the dictation of Jeremiah, saying, Take again another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned. End quote. Through incidents such as these in the Bible and what is written in history, we can see that the preservation of the Bible is God's will, and by His provision we are able to read the scriptures today. This reminds you of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Quote, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. End quote. I pray that we will stand firmly on the foundation of the word of our forever and everlasting God. We will end today's time for our program, quoting the beginning of the history of the Bible. I will see you next time. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Did Jesus ever get angry? And if so, how did Jesus deal? How did he cope with his anger? I mean, after all, isn't anger a sin? Well, today we continue our conversation on anger, and we're going to focus in on the two different types of anger. We've got righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Righteous anger meaning 
what are the godly reasons for me to get angry? Unrighteous anger are all the other reasons I choose to get angry. Today's lesson comes from two examples of Jesus getting angry in the Gospels. The first example comes from when he heals someone who was crippled. And the other comes from when people turn church into a shopping mall or some type of bingo parlor. This podcast featuring anger is part two of three, and it comes from a teaching series titled The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, this bondage or addiction to pornography. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, the motivation of our anger. Number two, how anger is produced within us. And number three, when anger takes place. So let's get started with today's lesson. It's titled, How Did Jesus Deal With Anger? Turn your Bibles to uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a, de- with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. So just imagine. Verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everybody. And then he turned to his critics and he asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. Verse 5, he looked around at them with anger. This is Jesus and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. And then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away, and he met with the supporters of Herod to plot for them to kill Jesus. Because think about it, the only time that we see Jesus get upset is obviously unrighteous anger is sins. Jesus didn't do that. It's, It's righteous anger. But we have to understand, this is why Jesus was so mad at the pastors of that day, was because they prevented people coming to him. They were, the, they were in the way of them getting to know who God was. They said, no, 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 you, you got to do all of this stuff, all of the traditions. And the, and the man-made traditions were the, were the things that man made up and, and God had nothing to do with it. That's why he was so mad. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 2, verse 13. Gospel of John. Chapter 2, verse 13, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. So Jesus made a whip from some ropes, and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money. Uh, the changers' coins all over the floor, and he turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered the prophecy from the scriptures. Passion, 
for God's house will consume me. So why was Jesus angry? The Jews themselves were defiling the temple. They made it in the Fashion Square Mall. <clears throat> Have you been to the Fashion Square Mall lately? You know how trashy that place is? I mean, think, now, now think about this. When I get angry, I tend to operate out of my anger. Jesus didn't do that here. He saw what was going on, and he decided, in verse 15, he made a whip. How long does it take to make a whip? The, the, the point is that he didn't react like most of us do. Now, now this is our Savior, right? Have you seen the, have you seen the TV shows, right? You, you, see, you see he's not out of control. These examples are not the reason that you and I get angry, though, right? We get angry because we're not getting our way. We get angry because we're not being treated the way that we feel we should be treated. We get angry because we've been humiliated. We've been disrespected. We've been, we get angry because our expectations don't work out, right? So you've got righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Righteous anger is this, and you see this, this it's motivated by a, a love for God. That's what righteous anger is. Someone else is being afflicted. Someone else is being hurt. Unrighteous anger is, it's motivated by a love of myself. It's about me. Righteous anger is produced by the Holy Spirit. Unrighteous anger is produced by the flesh. Make sense? Righteous anger occurs when God's will is violated. Unrighteous anger is when my will is violated. So what's that mean for us tonight? Sexual sin and anger go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. So when we really think about it, sexual sin in its most basic form is idolatry. It's worship. We have made ourselves our own God. If our sin is pornography, pornography through the world of fantasy, it gives us a venue in which we actually believe that people will and must treat us a certain way. In my fantasy world, nothing ever went wrong. I've got people smiling at me, adoring me, servicing me, and ultimately they're worshiping me. And this is where true addiction and bondage comes from. I actually believe that I deserve to be treated that way. However, when I get caught in my sin or the reality of, of my sin comes up in my real life, man, that world just comes crashing down around me and I get really angry because the lie of sexual sin or the lie of pornography or the, the infatuation with a person or uh, a prostitute or a strip club, all that stuff, it's not real. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how angry are you today? How about last week? How about last year? What would your spouse or maybe a close friend say? How would they, how would they rate you? When you walk in the door from a long day at work, is your spouse happy you're home? Or do the kids start going into the other rooms? So the big question is, why? Why are we angry? 
Is it because someone else is being mistreated or, or violated? Or is it because we're just not getting our way? You know, moving through this process, it can be pretty intense. And we usually think of ourselves in a better light than what we really are, right? We usually think we look better than what we do. Um, but when we see a picture, we're like, oh, oh my gosh, I got to lose some weight. I need to go start working out, you know, that kind of thing. We also consider ourselves more moral and more godly than we truly are as well. One example of this is our frustration level. It's our anger. When someone bumps into us really hard, how angry are we going to choose to be? Once again, this is a choice. We can either allow our emotions to rule us and consume us, or we can allow the Holy Spirit through discipline, knowledge, and wisdom. The great news in all of this is that once we realize how angry we are, well, then we can choose to repent and we can start over because Jesus Christ is the God of a million do-overs. Something that I touched on yesterday is how to prevent frustration, how to prevent anger from even getting to a boiling point. One way to prevent anger, frustration, is to block the evil of pornography from even entering your life, entering your home, installing a porn filter on all of your digital devices. Man, it, I tell you, it just drastically helps in this area. And if you don't have a current filtering software system on your your phone, your computer, your, your tablets, let me recommend Covenant Eyes filtering software. I've been using it for years and uh, let me encourage it. Visit covenanteyes.com today. And when you do, you can receive a 30-day free trial. All you have to do is put my full name in the promo box with no spaces. And when you sign up, you're also supporting the ministry of seven places and this podcast. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. If you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's a grace group. It's for men and women. And you are invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We're in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. And if you've got questions, I would love to respond to them. You can visit DustinDanielsRadio.com. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power is the very name and shed blood of Jesus Christ. I love you. Have a great weekend. And I look forward to our time again on Monday. Jesus
Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin 
of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, He Will Never Break a Promise, based on Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Just a little before this, chapter 10 of the book of Romans shows how Israel failed to believe in her Messiah, Jesus, and she failed to accept God's righteousness and instead tried to establish her own and righteousness by work. And as a result, Israel's ability and to present the gospel to the world was halted at that point. Paul knew that this raised some important questions, and and the question would be then, after chapters 9 and 10 of Romans was, well, then is God finished with Israel? That would be one question. Another question that he would be asking is, does God have a future plan for the nation of Israel? Are now it's a Christian church, somehow spiritual Israel. Does Israel still have a right to that little piece of land in the Middle East. Well, Paul moves on to answer these questions, continuing to use his style of debate. And I like the way he debates because he has this imaginary person he's talking to. And so he asks questions of this imaginary person that really does kind of represent me. I would have those same kind of questions. And so he asks a question, and then he answers our questions. So, So here's the first question. He says, look at chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? The word rejected in Greek means, has he cast away or has he pushed away from himself? Has God cast away Israel? Has he pushed away Israel from himself? That's the first question. It's a rhetorical question that he's asking. And there are many people who teach that The last prophecy concerning Israel was fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed, 70. And at that point, God was finished with the nation of Israel because of the rejection of Christ. I just want to say something about the the rejection of the Jews of Jesus. And I don't know if I should say it here. No, I'll wait, but just don't let me forget it. When I'm supposed to say it, you remind me like you're going to. I'll say it in a second. I think it'll fit in a little better. Now, there are people who teach that the church is Israel. I grew up in a church like that. We were Israel. We were God's last day people. We were God's chosen people. We were Jews, and the rest of everybody else in different denominations were Gentiles. Those are the terms we used. So, I mean, from my entire up. I was taught that the church was Israel. But you know, I had a real problem when I came to Romans chapter 11 because it didn't jive what I was taught. But come on, give me a break. I was a little kid. This is from little kidness on the way to adultness. Those aren't words, but please laugh. From my childhood to my adulthood, that's what I was taught. And so When I would read Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and verse 11, I would get, you know, I didn't know what to do with it. So you know how it is when you don't understand things in the Bible, you tend to just set them aside and just, oh well, and you roll on. I want to encourage you that if you come across things as you're reading the New Testament, 
that you feel comfortable enough to write those questions down and then go to somebody who knows a little bit more about the Bible and you ask them. I frankly, I was reading through the New Testament last year and I had questions, things that just hit me in this reading through and so I wrote them down. And then I went to a friend that I really felt you know, had a little a better grasp, would have of these certain questions and we sat down and we talked about it. And so I don't have these questions, you know, these nagging things or things I just skip over when I'm reading the Bible. So very important that we face those things head on. Well, anyway, Paul emphatically says that this cannot be, that the church does not replace Israel. When we say that the church replaces Israel, it's called replacement theology, which makes sense. It's saying that the literal promises God made to Israel about a people, a land, a temple, and and literal blessings like that aren't really literal. They're spiritual, and because of Israel's failure to accept the Messiah, which I wanna address in a minute, because of her failure to address the Messiah. Now, all those blessings are no longer hers because Anyway, they were spiritual and not literal. I just want to say that is so the church has got a problem because God has made some very literal promises to the church. And we better believe that when God says something is, it's literal and he means it. You can't pick and choose and decide, well, I'm going to edit the Bible and this is literal, but that isn't. Oh, everything I want is literal. But the things I don't want are spiritual. You can't pick and choose that way. So Paul emphatically says that it cannot be that God has rejected his people. Look one more time at verse one. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And some of our translations say, may it never be. Others say, by no means. Has God rejected his people? I want you to say, by no means. By no means. I'm going to say it again and you say it. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Un me. And you'll hear Paul say that throughout the New Testament. And it is a double negative in the Greek language. And if in the Greek you wanted to express something in an absolutely negative sense, it's the pounding of the pulpit. It's no, never is what it says. It's what Jesus says, that you shall have eternal life and you will never perish. And then, you know, he's saying, you shall never, no, never. It's that un may perish, tone And then he says forever, and that's never translated. So this is an absolute negative, okay? Has God forsaken his people? Un may. That means what? No, never. May it never be. If God were through with the Jews, his word would be meaningless. If God's promises in the Old Testament to Israel have not and will not be fulfilled literally, his promises to the church cannot be trusted. It's the same God who promised Abram in Genesis, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring, who knows what it says next, forever. He told Abram, you know, that's before his name's changed to Abraham. He says, Abram, all the land you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. Now you say, well, not really. That's just kind of a, you know, figure of speech. Well, wait a minute. Jesus says if we believe 
In him we'll have eternal life. How long's eternal? Forever. Well, is that just a figure of speech? Hello? No. No. I mean, God's words mean what they say, say what they mean, and we've got to believe them and not pick and choose. If it doesn't mean forever in the Old Testament, then how can we be assured that eternal, eternal life means eternal in the New Testament? Very important thing to think about. Paul emphatically says, by no means may it never be. In fact, the Hebrew idea behind this is that it would be profaning God if God reneged on his promises. And he couldn't say this in any stronger way. God is not through with the nation of Israel. He's not through with national Israel. Paul uses himself as a proof that God hasn't rejected his people. Look at verse one, the latter part. He says, for I am myself an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, I'm an Israelite, I go all the way back to Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Hey, I'm a Jew. And if God's finished saving Jews because the religious leaders rejected the Messiah, then how did I get saved for land's sake? That's what he's saying. How did I happen to get saved? Paul says, stop this kind of talk. As an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, God save me. I'm a Jew, God save me. People say, yeah, but they said, his blood be upon us and his children, and our children, rather. By the way, both Jews and Gentiles were responsible for crucifying Jesus, if I read the account right, hello? I mean, who the nails in his hands and feet? Italians. Well, Roman soldiers, I don't know where they came from, but I always think of them as Italians. (laughs) Gentiles, who put the crown of thorns on his head. Gentiles, who spit in his face. Gentiles, who mocked him, Jews. Who beat him nearly to death. Gentiles. You see, all of humanity was involved in the torture and the murder of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not every Jew rejected the gospel. Look at chapter 11, verse two. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul the apostle says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. And if it says they have not all obeyed, that means that some have obeyed, right? Some have obeyed. And a quick survey of the book of Acts shows that thousands of Jews received the gospel. I want to say this, and this is what I wanted to say when I was standing down here. I want to say this, that it was not the majority of Jews in Jerusalem that wanted to crucify Jesus. The majority of Jews, I've been wrong teaching this. I've said, yes, the thousands, the throngs that on Palm Sunday said, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Those people turn on him and... And they mocked him, they said, crucify him, crucify him. I don't think so. I'm changing my teaching there. This is what happened was those throngs wanted him to be king. If they knew the Romans were crucifying him, they wouldn't have allowed it to happen. That's why the religious leaders, whatever the 5% of the religious leaders, that's why they had to do it in the dark at night. They had to carry all of this in before the next morning 
so that the deed is done before the people find out about it. You can't say the whole city hated Jesus all of a sudden. It's not true. Now, when the whole city realized that he was dead, that was awful. The news spread, but the news of his resurrection spread as well. A quick survey of the book of Acts shows that thousands of Jews received the gospel. The 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost were all Jews. We read in Acts 2, 37 through 42, they were all Jews. And the 3,000, that's men. (laughs) Sorry, ladies and kids, you don't count. Yes, you do in God's eyes. But for some reasons, people counting didn't count men and children. And so we're talking about it could be triple that number that are saved on the day of Pentecost. Like we said, tomorrow is the Jewish holiday of Shavuot. It commemorates the birthday of the giving of the law. I love it. May I remind you that on that day, when the law was given, there was a blazing fire on Mount Sinai as God gave Moses the law. And on that day, 3,000 people died. There was fire on the mountain and 3,000 people died as a judgment of God. Do you remember that? But on another day of Pentecost, exactly 1,200 years later, the church was born and there was fire on another Mount Zion and 3,000 people were saved. Amen, right? What a praise. It's like the undoing of that disaster because with the new covenant comes better promises. We don't get judgment. Instead, we get not the fire of judgment. You get Holy Spirit fire, amen? The Holy Spirit's fire and the new covenant, the word the church is baptized on Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. 3,000 people live rather than die What a wonderful thing. And then thereafter that, there were 5,000. And again, that's just the men being counted alone. So I'm gonna say 15,000 perhaps saved in Acts. They were all Jews. In Acts 5.14, it says that more and more believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. We had baptism of women. I remember one weekend, I think we baptized 300 people that weekend. I'm pretty sure it was 300. And at that point, across the street, fortunately, at our central campus, we owned what used to be a laundromat. So it was full of washers and dryers. And so the Lord had spoken to my heart, and I was at Costco, and they were selling scrubs, hospital scrubs. The Lord spoke to my heart, you better buy a lot. So I bought a lot. They're blue, purple green, all those colors that you see in hospital scrubs. So fortunately, when we baptize people, the water is warm. (laughs) When you come to Israel with us, the water isn't warm, is it? It's like, (gasps) and I say, well, hey, you're going to remember this one. Sean the Baptist wasn't in a hot tub, okay? So we started baptizing, and there's so many people. We have double filters on all our baptistries. The chemicals are all there, so it's safe. From that standpoint, but as those brand new scrubs were getting wet, the dye was coming out of them and the water got black and black and it was so dark that when you step, you know, what's in there? And you know, we're talking about, will you die 
You're buried with Christ in baptism and you're raised to walk in newness of life. I mean, it was really, that was crazy. It was wonderful the Lord did. But I'm just thinking, where do you baptize that many people in Jerusalem? It's kind of crazy to think, where on earth did they go to baptize 20, 30,000 people in a very short time? In Acts 6, verse 7, it says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. They were all Jews. The priests, of course, they were probably secret believers, some of them, because they had all these lepers coming to them wanting to be cleansed because they really were healed of leprosy. Nobody had to do their leper work for years because no lepers ever got healed. They were trained in how to go through the ceremony of cleansing a leper, but nobody ever needed to do it. And now all of a sudden, swarms of lepers, that sounds bad. But many lepers are coming to Jesus and they're being healed. healed, And the, the priests are known. Many priests are being saved. All Jews, listen to the report given to the elders in Jerusalem about Paul's ministry. Acts 21, 17. I'm sorry we're not having time to look at all of these verses. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James was like the head of the church, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they glorified God, and they said, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. Yeah, the Gentiles are getting saved, but he says, you know how many thousands there are among the Jews who are being saved? The word thousands among the Jews is the word literally myriads in Greek. In the Greek vocabulary for the highest number. I mean, it's the highest number. Whatever, you know, you might say bazillions, you know, make up a word like that. Well, myriads is the highest number. He says, how many myriads of Jews are being saved. Listen, this is amazing. Josephus, a Jewish historian, states that more than one-third of the Jewish population of the world at the end of the first century were followers of Christ. Have you ever heard that? I never heard that before. One-third of the population of Jews in the world were saved before the death of John the Apostle. That's amazing work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? So, you know, God didn't just write off Israel. Are you kidding me? We're in Romans 11. Let's look at verse one. One more time. I say then, has God rejected his people? What do we say? By no means. Ooh, may. May it never be. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. The reason... Paul responds so strongly against the possibility of Israel being rejected by God as it brings into question the validity of the Old Testament covenants. This would be a problem because God is a promise keeper. Turn to somebody on your right and say, God is a promise keeper. Go ahead. Go to the left now. Say the same thing. God is a promise keeper. God made promises. He made, we call them covenants. To Abraham back in, he made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. 
You can go to Genesis 15 if you'd like and look at this. I'm gonna illustrate it for you in just a second though. Genesis chapter 15. And so ancient times, a covenant, we say, oh, they made a covenant. No, in the Old Testament, you cut a covenant. What I mean is that if you were gonna make a covenant with somebody, a promise with somebody, and you were serious about this, you would take sacrificial animals, you would cut them in two and make a path between them. Okay, now you can show it, all right? Can you understand that? Okay, now would you come up and just help me out? So here are the sacrificial animals, one on this side. We've got our animals each on the other side. And so just, will you, back to back. Okay, so you're gonna walk that way and I'm gonna follow. So what you would do is you would recite the words of the covenant while you were, go ahead. I'm following you and we're going to the end of the sacrifice and then we go back this way, okay? And we go through it as we're reciting through the whole covenant, okay? What you were saying, this is super serious. When you cut a covenant, you were saying, if I don't keep up my end of the deal, you can do to me what happened to those animals. Don't ever forget that. So now, God's gonna make a covenant with Abraham. He's gonna give him a land, he's gonna make of him a mighty nation. All the promises of Abraham, the messianic promises, all of these promises, he's gonna make with Abraham. And so again, Abraham cut the covenant, okay? He cut the animals that are laid down. And so he's getting ready back to back with God because it meant like, I'm gonna fulfill my part. That's why there's two of you. And you're gonna fulfill your part. And if you don't, you're gonna die. So it's time to get ready. And Abraham's ready. And it says a deep sleep came upon him. And he just kind of got groggy and slumped down and fell asleep. But what did God show him? This is so cool. God showed him in Genesis, what did I say? 15. This is what we see when this happens. This is so cool. Verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, a tear and a great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. I'll judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried a good old age. And then it says that what was happening, this was happening while the Lord was going through this, there was like a pot of fire, a vessel of fire that was going through it. Abraham didn't, wasn't even there to say, I'll do my part. This covenant God made with Abraham in, in uh, Genesis 15 is holy on the Lord. God cut a covenant, but then God said, oh, Abraham, it's all up to me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you're part of it, but why don't you go to sleep because I don't want you to get cursed because you're probably gonna bloat at some point. So you guys, the promise of God is not dependent upon us, upon our doing, our rejecting, or anything. It's God's promise. He walked through it. In a way, you think on the cross for any disobedience, Jesus took the punishment that he deserved that broke if there was a broken covenant. 
the promise was unconditional. God is saying the burden of bringing this promise to past rests on me. Not 50-50, it's all on the Lord. God made this promise to Abraham and then repeated it and clarified it, and he clarified the perpetuity of this covenant. God made this clear several times in the book of Jeremiah. Please, let's look at Jeremiah. Okay, the church replaced Israel, some say. I just want you to see Jeremiah. We're gonna look at some of these passages and I just want you to let the Bible speak for the Bible. Actually, God to speak to, for God. Jeremiah 33, verse 23. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, verse 24. Have you not observed what these people are saying? The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose. Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord. So you get what people were saying? They've rejected God, so God's despised them. They're no longer a nation in his sight. This is what God, thus says the Lord. If I have not established my covenant with the day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and of David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for I will restore their fortunes and have what on them? Mercy on them. So here are people saying, oh, God's rejected them because they've done bad things. He's not, and God said, do you remember this? God's saying, do you remember I cut a covenant? And he says, before I break my word, the sun's gonna have us to stop coming up in the morning the tides are going to have to stop. There aren't going to be sun or moons in the sky anymore. I still see the sun coming up every morning. How about you? Sometimes a little too early, right? I still see the stars at night. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. fun part of this is it's all together. It's real close, all of this together. Jeremiah chapter 31. God talks about how he's made a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, his covenant which they broke, though he was a father to them. But he's making a new covenant. The old covenant is obsolete. Galatians chapter three, it's pretty clear. This is speaking about the new covenant and the application of the new covenant to Israel and when Israel turns. And let's read where I wanna go. Let's go to verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives. He does this again, the same analogy. Let's read it together. I don't care what your translation is. Let's read the 35 and 36 together. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Do you pick that up? If the sun stops coming up, if the wave, the tides stop, if the stars and the moon stop, then, if, then, and it isn't gonna happen, ever 
till the new heaven and the new earth. He says, if that happens, then the offspring of Israel, how do you get around that? And then Romans 11, one and two, that God's finished with Israel and the church replaces Israel. I have to, give my scissors, please. That one out. Oh, the one we just read, cut that out. Romans 11, I need cut that out. And pretty soon, you know, God, we could hide things in our Bible because it's empty in the inside, you know? It looks like a, it's a secret hiding place. There's still a tide on the ocean. The sun still comes up in the morning. The moon still comes up. And God said, then Israel is still a nation before me. Well, I'm not so sure. I love it when you ask, say things like that. I'm not so sure. It's okay, because I got the answer. God goes on in the next verse, and he says then this. Look at verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be what? Explored. Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The New Living Translation says, this is what the Lord says, I will not consider casting them away for all the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. Israel will never cease from being a nation before me even for all the evil things they have done. You see, it's not, God's not clueless about this stuff. When God cut the covenant, remember, he put Abraham to sleep, general anesthetic, okay? He put him to sleep because he said, Abraham, this is gonna be all upon me. So someday I can say, if you can measure the heavens, if the sun starts coming, starts coming up, so I'm gonna say all of this because it is not based on you, your performance, it's based on my sovereign choice. Because I am a God who is all wise, a God who has an eternal purpose, that the secret things belong to the Lord. We don't understand why this nation, why this people, but God did it, God chose it, and this is God's purpose and his plan. Israel's disobedience didn't take God by, by surprise. He knew it when he chose Abraham. He knew every act of violence they would perpetrate against his son. And he still made this promise and he still stood by his promise. God is not in heaven going, I can't believe what the descendants of Abraham did. I can't believe that some of them yelled, crucify him. I'm shocked they said, his blood be upon us and our children. I can't believe this. Theology 101. God knows things before they happen. Yet he says he will not forsake them for all that they have done. If Israel has rejected the Messiah and God has not rejected them, why has God not rejected them? Because God keeps his word. God is a covenant-keeping God. And if God isn't a promise-keeping God, what kind of confidence would you have in him personally? Frankly, I think I can say this. This is probably one of the greatest evidences that you have for having an absolute assurance that you can trust the promises of God. 
Well, why? I believe God's a covenant-keeping God. And it's not dependent on me all the time, right? I mean, some promises are conditional, but some are not. I don't know if I'm saved. I really blew it. You know what? You're part of the eternal covenant. You're part of the Abrahamic covenant. You're part of this. God says, look, your salvation is not based on what you do. Go to sleep. Based upon what Christ has done for us. And we believe that and we trust that unconditionally because God is a covenant promise-keeping God. God was faithful to fulfill his word. In Ezekiel 36, 37, 37, 38, 39, where he said there'd be a dead nation, dry bones scattered all over. How do you raise dry dead bones? No marrow in them. You've been in the forest, you've walked some, you and you've seen, you know, maybe the remains of an animal that died and Ezekiel sees this in a vision and God says, these are the bones of the household of Israel. They've gone through fire, a fiery, horrible, fiery experience. But God says, he says, do you think I can raise these bones up? Ezekiel's smart enough to say, not yes or no. He says, you know, Lord. (laughs) And so God began in this vision to show how these bones came together and then the ligaments, the muscles, the skin and, and this became a great army, a great, great crowd of people. And he says, I'm raising up my people from the dead. They've come out of the furnace. Many of us believe that you know, this was a holocaust. You know, part of speaking of how they're coming out of this horrible furnace of affliction. And he says, I'm bringing them back into their land, Ezekiel chapter 38. He brings them back into a, a land, and it's, it's a land where they take that which is desolate and they turn it into a blooming, blossoming place. If you go to Israel, you're gonna see that today. You've gotta go to Israel. Go with these guys, go with me. Go to Israel, you've got to see what God has done. And it's all in fulfillment to his promise. 70 years ago, Israel became a nation. This is like the 70th birthday week. 70 years ago, we celebrate the faithfulness in God and saying, I will reestablish you in the land. I will put you in the land. Abraham, I promised. And I keep my promise. You see Tel Aviv right there? That's the beginning of Tel Aviv, what? In the turn of the century. See it? There's Tel Aviv. And God says, no. I'm gonna bless, look at what God's done. And what, we say 80 years, right? It is amazing place. Just amazing, beautiful place, Tel Aviv. I love that photo I took. See the rainbow over Tel Aviv, isn't that cool? God keeps his promises. God's promised you eternal life. God's promised you an eternal city. God's promised you that he'll take care of you. Trust him, Israel is one of the greatest object lessons of why we can trust God. And we never want to take away the power of the word of God. We never want to sit in judgment over it and say, oh, well, that's not what it means. When God says forever, he means forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. 
Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We've been given a more sure word of prophecy. We're grateful for your covenant promises, and there are many others. But as we are focused in on what you are doing and have done through the nation of Israel, and you have this national plan, we're so grateful. And we thank you, Lord, that we have been, those of us who are Gentiles, we have been grafted in to that promise, that covenant that you cut with Abram. We've been grafted into that, and so our salvation is not dependent upon us having our part of the agreement. And we don't have to be afraid that if we fail, we die. But rather, we stand as we're told Abraham was justified by his faith. And we stand declared righteous, clean, cleansed, right with you through our faith. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful plan that you have. And we just continue to be in awe of it. And we pray, Lord, that your plan would begin to wrap up here soon, that each one of us can do our part in hastening, hurrying up the day. And we pray that we can do our part to touch the people that you love, this national group that you love, and open, be used to help open their eyes that they might see what we know right now, how much you love them. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Faith. 
infinite mercy and love. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, Thy hand hath provided. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endures. This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.